Today on The Black Goat, moving, how does it affect you, the people around you, and the culture of academia, and a letter about how to be a good reviewer in light of shifting research practices. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava, and I'm here with Alexa Tullett and Samin Vizier. And Samin, we have some sad news about uh, our honorary fourth podcaster, Bear. She's still here with us today, but today is her last day. So I think she would want to spend her last day barking in the background of our podcast. I'm pretty sure that's, that's pretty much how she wants to go out. I won't yeah. edit any of them out. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, she's she has joined us. That's true. She's not just an honorary fourth podcaster. <laughs> she's been a, her her and your cat. Uh, Kristen was listening to one of our old podcast or recent podcasts and was cracking up at your cat knocking mm-hmm. things off your yeah. desk during during a recording. But yeah, Bear has occasionally uh, not just knocked Voiced things, but gotten her voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah voice things. So, I mean, you were saying that you're pretty sure you want to get a new dog. Yeah. I'm not so sentimental about that. Like I was going to say, yeah, is like that like, that's do like people a coping strategy? That? I feel like people who aren't like people who are talking to someone in my position would be like shy about asking about that. But because uh-huh. I think everybody's different. But for me, it's like explicitly a coping strategy. Like I feel better because I know that I will have another dog pretty soon. I'm going to try to wait till after my summer travel, but we'll see if I make it that long. Mm hmm. Would you try to get a dog that's similar to Bear? I like giant dogs, but I would probably, I don't think I'd get a puppy. It's so hard having a puppy. So I'd probably go to the shelter and look at adult dogs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Bear is, uh, I guess she's kind of familiar because we've talked about her before. We actually, I have to say, I felt bad and then good because uh, this was a few episodes ago we were joking yeah <laughs> about her her anal masses i didn't know if it would be cancer yeah and then like a day later you texted and you're like yeah it's cancer and i was like oh <laughs> now i feel like a dick for yeah. like making jokes about yeah. her anus but then you posted something on facebook saying like it's okay to joke about it because yeah. I, you know, I feel so much better okay joking about it. So, like, I already have in my mind, like, what I'm going to post on Facebook tomorrow after I put her down. And I'm going to say what my dad said to me, which was when he was talking to me about, like, how it's going to be hard. He was like, yeah, 10 and a half years. You've changed boyfriends, but you haven't changed dogs in 10 and a half years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that pretty much summarizes my relationship with Bear. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think tomorrow will be an interesting test of my... I don't know, low neuroticism or avoidant attachment style. I'm not sure which, but like, I feel pretty okay. Like I was sad after I found out she had cancer. Like I was sad one or two days the next week. And then, but like, I haven't cried about putting her down. Like since I decided and made the appointment and stuff like that, I'm sure I'll cry tomorrow, but I also feel like it's pretty easy to talk myself into it being a positive thing. Like she's lived beyond her lifespan, despite being born with a liver that wasn't working at all. She had a major surgery as a puppy. Then she had another major surgery a few years ago. She has a heart murmur. She has butt cancer, all these things. And and she's still like barely suffered. Like she, she has to be put down because she can't poop basically, but most of the day she's okay. Um, so she's going to die without having suffered too much. She's going to have had a long life and a good life and better than anything I expected when I got her. So mm-hmm. I feel like it's pretty good. Yeah. We'll see if I still feel that way tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Have you uh, had to put pets down, Sandra? I know. I, um, all of our pets when I was growing up died naturally. Mm-hmm. So we had, I say all of our pets, we didn't have very many pets. We had a dog who, who I think died in his sleep. And we had a rabbit who also died. Um, and then we had hamsters and one of them killed the other one and then died. So <laughs> yeah, I know. Suicide. they lived in one of those like habit trail things. And so it was like, there was a main cage and a tower and basically, you know, do you remember these things when you were little kids? Like the, uh-huh. and the, the tower was like supposed to be this little thing. It was literally like barely bigger than a hamster. And so, but they would fight all the time. And so the one would just live up in the tower that was like barely larger than its 
like place and they, they were just territorial and, it, and we didn't know what to do about them and so it was yeah it was kind of a not a pleasant existence but I, so I guess it's okay that the one killed the other because it sort of put it out of its misery. It was awful and makes me never want to own hamsters ever again. Oh, yeah, fair. Um, your story reminded me of a question that a friend asked me that I can ask you guys as fellow psychologists. Um, so she asked me, is there a psychological term for when you think something is so adorable that you want to squish it? I think you already asked us this. Really? Or you already asked me this. Or somebody did. No? Maybe I'm just having deja vu. I don't know. I don't know if it's there was, the answer. <laughs> there was a... There was a... I think there was a poster on this at SPSB a few years ago that got picked up in the media. And, like, it was this weird thing because why is the media covering a poster? But, but it was, like... <laughs> Someone actually did a study on this. I don't know if it ever ended up getting published in a legit journal. I don't know if it was uh, if there was like a, a good study or if it was just kind of a gimmicky thing. I, I apologize if the person who did this is listening and was like, "That was my dissertation. That's how I got my job." You assholes, why are you making fun of my study? Um, but some, somebody at least did do a study on that. Um, uh, the sort of like, "Oh, it's so cute. I could squish it," kind of thing. Um, I the yeah. You guys have a way more informed answer to this question than I expected. <laughs> but I don't. I did not. I, I think the, not the, if I remember right, I might be totally making this up. Maybe this is just how I would have. Th- but no, I think it was something about like approach systems or something like that. That like you know this idea that happiness and anger are both approach motivations, and so I, I could be totally making mm. this up. By the way, um, but uh, yeah, it was some. I think that the story was something like that. Um, but I mean, it's like the, the, there's a website, Cute Overload, which is sort of captures the idea. So I don't think this is like a new insight that people see things that are so cute that they just want to squish them. Huh. Anyway. Cool. I'll pass that along. To my <laughs> I'm like really excited now to answer a question. So Alexa, you were mentioning that you did a meditation class recently. I did. Yeah. So for the first time... Um, I, I think I've probably meditated less than five times in my life. And one of them was this weekend. Um, so there's a a woman, Lynn Snow in our psychology department who, uh, leads meditation sessions, um, I think twice a week. Um, so yeah, this was the first time I've ever done something like in a group. Um, and basically it started out with like, I had like a guided meditation part where she sort of like told us to think about our posture and our breathing and stuff. And then you just like sit quietly for 30 minutes. Um, and I've sort of been thinking, I've been thinking about both the possibility of keeping a diary, um, and meditating. And in some ways I feel like they're sort of different approaches to a similar thing. I'm hesitant to do the, the diary thing, um, partly for, for the, um, reason that I find it so embarrassing. I'll like write a diary entry and then I'll go back and read it, which is, I yeah, probably don't my do first that. mistake. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I'm like, forget this, this is terrible. Um, so I've never gotten very far with diaries, but the other thing I was thinking was that maybe, um, diaries are a lot of like analysis, um, where you're trying to sort of figure things out. And I feel like I do that a lot with friends mostly Samin. Um, and, uh, and then meditation seems like a different approach where it's more like you're not necessarily, I think kind of explicitly, you're not trying to figure things out really mm-hmm. other than just sort of like, I guess, observe your thought process. Um, but yeah, I was wondering if you guys had done either of those things. I haven't tried meditating in a long time. Um, I have tried it before. I recently was thinking about like, oh, should I try to do this again? Because, um, like, hang on. Oh yeah. Sorry. I, for a moment, <laughs> I'm having weird audio difficulties for a Get moment. I thought my thing wasn't recording. <laughs> anyway, um, I read this, I, I thought about it recently, like, oh, maybe I should try it. And I, I, there's so much like sort of woo woo stuff associated with yeah. it that I, I just have an immediate allergic reaction to. And I heard about this book mm-hmm. called 10% Happier that was supposed to be the, like, no bullshit book about meditation. Even that had, like, mm-hmm. 
borderline more bullshit than I could handle. Uh, <laughs> I know. And so I, but I, I keep coming back to like, I, I don't, I don't know that it would actually do anything good. Uh, the, the, I, I posted a, a tweet about a meta-analysis of clinical trials on meditation and compassion mm -hmm. recently showing that like it was a null we'll effect. It, oh, it's, it's just uh, all publication mm -hmm. bias. Um, and uh, then I got all these people in my mentions showing up and going, you know, like, that's not what meditation is supposed to do. No one thinks that's what meditation is supposed to do. And I was like, uh, okay, tell the 23 people that did randomized control trials that went mm -hmm. into this meta-analysis that that's not what it's supposed to do. Like, don't, don't show up in my fucking mentions. But um, I just think there's so much, like, all the claims, I don't believe the evidence for the, the like, scientific evidence for any of the claims. But I kind of... Mm -hmm there's a part of me that thinks oh, I should try it anyway. <laughs> so I should probably try I it anyway. I think I was sort of curious about the experience. Yeah. Of it. Like, so wait, the, the meta-analysis was about meditation and what was it? Compassion, like pro-social behavior, oh, compassion. compassion. And, and you know, right. it, it, it was basically like the, um, I thought that this is what I tweeted that the, um, the key moderator was, uh, whether the, person who taught the meditation course was a co-author on the paper if they were then it got a significant effect oh, no. it was just it was such a mess uh it was it was uh -huh. it was one of those meta-analyses where it's like i feel like more and more meta-analyses are like this these days where the point of the meta-analysis isn't to estimate the effect the point of the meta-analysis is to discover all the things that are fucked up in the literature um i almost mm -hmm. feel like that's more what i get out of most meta-analyses these days but anyway mm -hmm. that's a tangent that's um, a that's a topic for <laughs> that should be a whole podcast <laughs> what are all the Although ways i'm not that... sure we have different enough views right. for it <laughs> we'll to be an interesting yeah meta-analyses are fucked yeah i know yeah mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. um, but so what so you just kind of wanted to do that for the experience alexa you're not looking to necessarily get anything out of it or is there like you want to is there some outcome or some benefit you're looking for or you just want to try it I think the process of, I think conceptually the idea is interesting to me. Like the goal of paying more attention to what you think about. Um, so my, I also have like several friends who meditate and, and most of them say that they really like it, but it's more the, yeah, more the experience of trying it. It seems, mm -hmm. it seems like the equivalent of like, yeah, like trying a new thing. Um, and you were going to say so drug, like weren't a... you? I was going to say drug, and I didn't say drug. <laughs> I can just tell that pause. <laughs> of course, that's because that's where my mind goes too, right? <laughs> yeah, if one were to try new drugs, I imagine it would be much like trying new meditation techniques. So meditation sounds like torture to me. I don't know which sounds worse, trying a new drug or trying meditation. <laughs> Um, I've done almost, almost never done either. Um, yeah. I mean, the closest I come to meditation is like not being on my phone the whole time I'm walking my dog sometimes <laughs> or playing Sudoku. That's almost meditative. It's effective yeah. at clearing my mind. Uh -huh. Um, but yeah, my mind is not pleasant in its resting state, which is We've weird because like, before. I don't think of myself as an unhappy person, but like I often have like annoyingly negative dreams like not super horrible ones but mm -hmm. just like annoying dreams which is kind of what my like resting mental state is if i'm not distracted huh it's like a nag or something right is that is that true of you too sanjay i, re I remember talking to you samin about like um i think it was you maybe you were talking about like being on the phone like wanting to be on the phone when you're walking bare or something like that mm -hmm. um and you were, I was saying that it's like sometimes nice to just like be forced to not really think about anything. And you were like, oh my God, that sounds terrible. Yeah. Do you feel that way, Sanjay? I, I feel like it can go, it can go in different directions. So sometimes when I'm, you know, when I don't have anything sort of occupying me, it'll be, it's like the sort of like the cliche of like being creative in the shower or whatever. Like my, my mind will just sort of like go off sometimes on sort of, yeah, kind of associations and directions where I'll be kind of thinking expansively about things. But then other times, yeah, it's just the, like, sort of negativity and, and you know, self-criticism and that kind of thing. So it, it kind of varies for me. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, and I should say, like, I think actually sitting down to meditate would probably be, from what I've heard about it and from what I remember from back when I did try it, it, it might very well be different because, I, like, when when my mind wanders, I sort of, if it's going in an interesting direction, I kind of, like, want it to keep going and see where it goes, mm-hmm. just kind of the opposite of if you're doing mindfulness and you're trying to, like, sort of observe it but then come back to the breath. Um, rather than like, mm-hmm. oh, let's continue down this road. So, yeah. so right. it might be different, but I, I should probably try it. To I see. wonder. I don't know if it's an illusion, but I have the feeling for me that it's the opposite. Like, if something is bothering me, <clears throat> then I like ruminating. I feel like it gets me somewhere. Like, I feel I have this like very powerful <laughs> illusion that if I just think about it enough and hard enough, I'm going to fix it, and then it's going to not bug me anymore. And I still feel like that works for me. So, like. Mostly I want distraction when nothing's bothering me because then I'm like, I don't want those annoying thoughts. I don't need them because nothing's wrong. Mm -hmm. So they're just like petty, annoying thoughts. Mm -hmm. But when it's like a substantive thing that I do want to like deal with, then I let myself think more. Yeah, I think I agree with that to an extent. I, there are times when I get sick of myself, like I've been ruminating about the same thing for a long time. And I'm just like, oh my God, you're so annoying. Like think about that happens for me too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, should we should we move on to our letter, not yeah. to yeah, not sure. to cut off the the, the mind wandering? <laughs> <laughs> but this was a really interesting one. Yeah, yeah this is a great letter. Um, Dear the Black Goat, about a year ago, I realized my research has been riddled with various kinds of scientific malpractices I wasn't even aware were actual problems. Like many people, I'm currently working really hard on adopting better and clearer scientific pra- practices in my own right but it feels like I've got a long way to go. Consequently, I find it difficult to criticize other people for doing the exact same thing I myself have done for years. I am an avid peer reviewer and also serve on the editorial board for a prominent journal in my field. Lately, however, I find myself struggling with whether and or how I should incorporate criticism that goes beyond just the contents of the paper, but that might also help to boost a more transparent scientific process. For example, I'm afraid that asking people to report all of the variables in their entire data set, and not just the ones that they're reporting, um, or to adopt lower significance levels in their analyses, might be misconstrued as preaching or bullying by the authors and the journal editors. It might sound lame, but I can't help but think that while most people are still laboring under the old paradigm, it's unfair to be rejecting papers on these grounds alone. I find my, or I myself still have some papers that I'm obligated to finish that are based on non-optimal data collection processes, for example. So I feel like a complete hypocrite asking people to fulfill criteria that I'm not able to entirely fulfill myself. I'd really appreciate if you guys could share how you've approached these or similar issues in your own reviewing process. Sincerely, eager reviewer Beaver. I, you know, it's, I think the... I've, I've, I've mentioned before, I've sort of joked, but not entirely, that I started doing pre-registration because I felt like someone was going to notice I wasn't pre-registering anything and call me a hypocrite because I would be. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so I, uh, um, I think there's, I think there's the potential for a sort of virtuous cycle of like letting, being a little bit aspirational in an you're reviewing and then letting that cycle back to you and looking at yourself and saying, if I'm, if I'm saying other Mm -hmm. people should do this, I should do it myself. So I don't think you have to, as a peer reviewer or as a reader of other people's research, everything's always going to be flawed in some way. No research is perfect. And Mm -hmm. so, but you, you know, we still have to use our critical faculties and make these kind of nuanced calibrated judgments. And so I don't think there's any, and I, I understand the personal, sort of conflict because I feel it too mm-hmm. when I'm reading other stuff and I, I you know and this is actually this was the case for me and maybe for other maybe for you guys too or other people even before the replication crisis where it's like you always know the flaws in your own work better than you can tell from reading about somebody else's it's just it's a new set of flaws we're now aware of but it you know for me that was always the issue that I always knew what was wrong with my own work intimately well and I had to deal with it and so yeah so I think kind of being being able to to be a little bit aspirational about what science should look like and to and also there are ways to frame these things that aren't necessarily like oh i think you're a terrible person and a p hacker and your thing shouldn't be published right. but to say oh that here's what's worthwhile about this but also you know i can't tell if these are all the variables that were included 
um, and it would it would help me in, uh, sort of interpret the paper better if I knew that or I you know those kinds of things. Right. I think that's kind yeah. of a starting point. I think some of the the dilemmas that this uh, letter writer mentions can be reduced. So I don't always do this or I'm not always capable of keeping this in mind, but I try when I'm reviewing papers to just think about like, is this paper teaching me something new? Like, can I learn something new from these data and the way that the people have written this paper? Um, And that takes a little bit of the onus off of making decisions about whether somebody did the right thing, like rather than evaluating the author of the paper, instead you're just sort of evaluating the paper. Um, So I find that at least I feel less conflicted about saying like, you know, regardless of whether your decision was forgivable or you tried hard or whatever, um, like I don't feel like I can learn a lot from this paper for these reasons or even like the opposite kind of situation. I guess it's, I see it as sort of similar to evaluating student work. I think that my role as a teacher when I give a student a grade is to do my best to grade the quality of their work and ignore any other circumstances. So, you know, I, I try not to consider whether they like, you know, I, whether they went through the right process or not. Yeah. I think that, I think that ignoring the person also has a, an implication that's kind of an undercurrent in this, especially towards the end of this letter and and in a lot of discussions, which I'm not saying the, the letter writer was saying this exactly, but let me sort of caricature it a little bit, which is like, I worked hard on this and I deserve to have it published. Right. And that's not what they're what the letter writer's saying, but they're kind of saying this like, mm-hmm. you know, the the it feels unfair because the rules changed. I have these old yeah. projects. And I think just just like we would want our good work to like to not be people we wouldn't want someone to say, Oh, you're at like a second class institution or you're a woman or you're a whatever. Um, we wouldn't want the person to influence the judgment of the work that way. I think there's a, it's a very understandable human response to be like, I worked my ass off for this, and I didn't know that we were supposed to do it this way and, and whatever, um, but we have but to evaluate the work. But it's not just we're supposed to do it this way. So, like, just to be a little less tactful than you guys, if <laughs> Wait, it was, was just a was matter of, tactful. like, <laughs> yeah, I think both of you gave pretty generous answers. Like, I would be a little harsher, and I would say it's it depends which kind of practices you're talking about, but some kind of practices are more like norms, like, okay, well, now we expect this, and before we expected that, and that's harder. But some are just like, oh, we realize this is wrong, yeah. and yeah, making exactly. an inference from this kind of evidence is wrong. And there, I would say both that you should hold people to the new standard, even if like the standard could change overnight and that wouldn't, yeah. that would suck for all the people who's were about to submit and now have to go back to square one. But imagine mm-hmm. that we found out that like some kind of regression technique actually just produces completely false results to exaggerate. Right. Um, and then we wouldn't say, well, okay, as long as you did that regression technique before May 18th, when we found out it was wrong, then you're okay. Right. And so, I mean, these practices are on a continuum. None of them is that black and white that it's like there's nothing good Mm -hmm. that can come from it. But to the extent that some practices that we used to think were okay, we now realize really we shouldn't be engaging in them. We shouldn't be interpreting them the way we were. Then we should hold people to that new standard, even if they couldn't possibly have known when they did the research. It doesn't change the fact of the matter that the inference is wrong. But then you have to stop doing it yourself. You can't have it both ways. You can't say but I'm going to keep doing it because I have these papers I still have to get out. Like if it's wrong, it's just wrong. And you have to find something else to do with those papers, either toss them in the garbage or lower your standards. Like say, well, I can't get what I thought I could get out of these studies. Let's say they're way too small sample, but maybe you can say, well, I'll put them up on a preprint so that people could include them in a meta-analysis or I'll whatever, publish them in a journal where I don't have to draw any conclusions from them. I can just say what I did and what I found and, or, you know, I can p- publish the data set or whatever. Find some way to get some credit for what you did without trying to get credit for something it can't tell you. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. I think the, I mean, this this comes up a lot. And I think the, that kind of motivation is kind of what led people down the road of p-hacking and harking and all that stuff to begin with mm-hmm. was this sort of, I worked hard for this and... You know, I have to, and and in some sense, even like not, some of it is like egocentric, like I deserve this, but some of it is also just like, 
this was a tough data set. It's an interesting data set. I should, mm-hmm. you know, the world should know about this or whatever. And, and mm-hmm. in, in a world, in a parallel universe where you could have an unbiased Can you say report, that with a much deeper voice, in, Sanjay? In a, para- in a world. In a world, in a world <laughs> where data sets can be treated equally <laughs> and where there's no publication bias. You could just tell people what you found. Instead, you have to make up a story. I like your commitment. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I actually recently, well, so actually today, I was going to write a, a thread on Twitter about this, but I couldn't figure out exactly how to articulate it. But I had a similar experience. So recently as a reviewer, I mentioned in my review, and I signed my review so the reviewers might know who they are, or the authors. And I said, like, in the discussion, the the authors kind of picked out the most favorable results and focused on those and kind of made the, made the best case they could for their claim. And like, I get that that's what discussion sections were supposed to be until recently, but to me, it made me feel like I trusted the authors less. Like that's not a dispassionate, skeptical approach. And if you're doing that in the discussion, then I worry that you did that in the analyses too and stuff like that. So I was, I was thinking about, this is like this dilemma where what it used to be from an author's perspective, what you should do in the discussion section to have the best chance of getting published now could backfire with reviewers like me, where it's like, no, the more humble you are and the more calibrated you are and the more you show that you're trying to be skeptical and trying right. to like be objective, even if you can't right. be, then the more and I'm going to like your paper. Yeah. And that's one way to think about. So the, I guess the person who writes the letter expresses this like fear of being sort of unfair Um, But there's a different kind of unfair, which is like, if we continue to reward practices that we don't think are ideal, then the people who are doing the ideal practices um, don't get encouraged to do them, right? There's no benefit to Yeah, and there's a way with some practices, like like overclaiming in the discussion section, depending on what role you're in, reviewer, editor, but there's a way that you can say, I don't think you should do it this way. I think you should do it this other way. That's more like transparent and calibrated and so on. And I actually will like your paper better and have a better chance of accepting it or reviewing it positively if you do that. Yeah. I think, so like saying I won't hold it against yeah. you if you do that. Yeah. I think part of part, there's sort of two different threads. One is the kind of unfairness to the author thing. And, and then the other <clears throat> is kind of a like, well, how do I do this thread? And, and I think the, you know, just saying to somebody like, oh, you need to have more subjects because that's the new rules or you need to whatever. I don't think that's, yeah, I don't think that's particularly helpful. I think the the response has to be framed in terms of how would this make science better? How would this make Mm -hmm. this a a better paper? And so saying, you know, I mean, I, I had a situation happen not long ago where I was reviewing a paper and it was, uh, I won't get into the details of it, but I knew for a fact that there was an important dependent variable that hadn't been included in the paper. And, you know, I, I could, you know, in my mind, guess probably why it wasn't in there because it wasn't significant. Um, but, you know, I tried as best as I can uh, to frame it as like, look, this is, this is like, I know you have this variable in your data set and this is sort of the obvious variable to look at. And it would be better if we know, and we ought to know, even if it wasn't significant, like, it's an interesting question. We ought to know the, I mean, I don't, again, this is another one of those cases now that I signed my reviews where I'm like, yeah, the authors mm-hmm. of that paper are like throwing their phones against the wall because they're like, you were not that <laughs> reasonable, Sanjay. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, I, at least I was, what I was aspiring to was to, to like frame it in terms of like, not like don't drop variables because bad people drop variables, but to say don't drop variables mm. because it's actually, it gives us a better answer, even if it's not a more satisfying answer, even if it's not a significant answer, it's a scientifically better answer to see yeah. the, the variable that didn't quote unquote work. The other thing I'll say is if I had to choose between reviewers who were appropriately critical, like there are practices that should be called out and they're going to call them out, but also are hypocrites because when they're authors, they do those practices yeah. versus a reviewer who's like, look, I'm going to keep doing these practices. So I'm not going to call it out in a review. I would choose the first one every day of the week, especially as an yeah. editor, right? Like the field will be better off if you just act like a hypocrite and be a good reviewer, even if you're going to be a bad researcher sometimes. I mean, I still think you should feel bad. You should feel that hypocrisy so that you're motivated to try to improve your practices um, yeah. yeah, this reminds me of a conversation that 
Samin, you and I had like really when we very first met. Um, and Is this you were about talking the about how. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, you were talking about how there was like a specific um, situation where you were doing something that you um, thought was like not in line with your values. Um, and you just said, like, I know that I'm being a hypocrite. Yeah. Um, and I think like, so if you, if you think about like hypocrisy as sort of like in sort of cognitive dissonance terms, it's like you, if you are not going to change your behavior, you can change your attitudes. Yeah. Um, but sometimes maybe it's better to just like sit with the dissonance and leave your attitudes where they were. Yeah. I mean, it's hard because I do want people to like if they're being appropriately critical as reviewers, but not applying that critical eye to themselves, like I do want them to apply it to themselves too. It's just that I don't, if they're not yeah, going to, I still want them to be critical as reviewers. Right. right? Well, I don't like to... I'm not comparing the situation of like changing your behavior or not. I'm saying like, if you're not changing your behavior, mm-hmm. is it better for you to right, like, right. say that yeah. those things are not important, but that's still when they are. Of- could lead to moral hazard where people are like, okay, well, at least I'm being an appropriately critical reviewer, so I'm off the right. hook because I'm. But if, if everyone if everyone else is a reviewing hypocrite too, then they'll have to. Yeah, change. then they won't be able to get away. But with, yeah, yeah right. no, it's like it's like if you're this to just massively oversimplify it. If you're a hypocrite because you're doing one good thing and one bad thing, you can resolve your hypocrisy by doing two bad things. Right. But that, that's yeah. probably not, yeah, exactly. that's not yeah. the net best way to do it. But also don't feel too good about the fact that you're doing <laughs> right. one good thing and one bad thing. I guess that's the bottom yeah, no, line. But, right. So the right. way to resolve your hypocrisy is by bringing up the bad thing, not bringing down the good yeah. thing. Which yeah. I have to say, yeah. this past week I had a Skype meeting with a collaborator and there was something, I mean, it's not, it's not p-hacking, but it's in the realm of like things you want to believe, but maybe aren't so about your data. And we'd had conversations about this several times and I finally had to be like, I'm just not comfortable with that interpretation. I'm not going to go along with it. And it was hard because like this person's an early career researcher and, um, and I mean, they weren't pushing so much. They weren't really pushing for the other interpretation, but they were just still leaving it on the table. And at some point I had to be like, I'm just not okay with this being on the table. Like I'm, I won't go along with that. And it was it's so hard. Right. So I can see why, how easy it is to convince yourself to not fight on all those things. I don't know. It's so complicated, especially, you know, everybody has different interpretations and you don't know in any case what's right or wrong. So I guess I want to push back on my own comment about it's okay to be a hypocrite sometimes because it's just so easy to give yourself a pass and, and these becoming a better researcher and doing the right thing and like catching yourself when you're engaging in motivated reasoning is not going to be easy. So giving people any excuse to let themselves off the hook makes me squirm a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think I think I also, our, our answer for the letter writer seems to be go ahead and review the way you now know you ought to review, and if you uh, and and don't get too comfortable with your hypocrisy, but don't resolve it yeah. by shaving down your reviewing. Re- re- right. Resolve it yeah. by elevating how you do your research and and give yourself some permission. I would say to to like not be perfect, but. Uh, don't let that turn into an excuse. Right. This is, yeah. Don't do anything that you think is wrong. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of gray area, but if you think something mm-hmm. shouldn't, if you as a reviewer would call something out and say, this is not okay, then don't do it. Yeah. I thought Yulia Rohr also had a great um, blog post this week that was along the same lines about like, what should you do as a reviewer? If you see P values that are unlikely without, you know, some kind of um, researcher degrees of freedom, and she said, you know, her advice was, and I'm quoting here, so the next time you review a manuscript with uncanny P-mountains, so P-values right around 0.05, don't just enjoy the scenery. Ask some critical questions because that's the purpose of peer review. And then she goes on, but isn't it wrong that single researchers who might have just gotten unlucky are under suspicion for the vices of the field? Well, yes, but this is part of the whole tragedy. Rampant abuse of P-values has made it impossible to discern the rare, legit occurrence of multiple P-values above 0.01. So she's saying, go for it as a reviewer, be critical, even if sometimes you're going to catch some people who don't deserve it in your net. And I think that's the case with all criticisms in in the review process, right? There's going to be some cases where you're like, well, your measure is not validated and it actually would have been a valid measure and you were being quote unquote inappropriately harsh or whatever, but yeah, yeah. right. Cool. Mm -hmm. Cool. Maybe we should just always 
use quotes from Yulia Aurora yeah, right. in your letters. <laughs> That's how I teach. I just show Yulia Aurora's talk. Like I show five minutes every class period at the beginning, and then we talk about it. <laughs> well, she. We, I was. I was about to make a, a comment that we get to have her on as a fourth podcaster, but that's apparently not a good thing to be yeah right. she doesn't want the same fate as our other fourth podcaster uh anyway well okay cool well i hope uh eager reviewer beaver and by the way love the signature eager reviewer beaver yeah. eager beaver reviewer mm-hmm. b it's a pun they actually yeah. came up with something i didn't even catch i that. know That's well weird. we're always complaining about how people send us these things and then they say like anonymous and so i just wanted to if if nothing else, thank you, Eager Reviewer Beaver, for uh, um, having a good signature, but also having a good email letter to us. And so yeah. for people listening, yeah. if you have a dilemma or anything else, you can reach us, letters at theblackcoatpodcast.com. Um, we always appreciate hearing from people, whether it's a letter to be read on the podcast like that one, or just feedback or thoughts or whatever. We, we do read our emails. Um, and we try to respond to many of them. We don't, I can't say we respond to a hundred percent, but we probably respond to a lot if we can. Um, there's a chance that it's a hundred percent. It's a slim chance. If it's a hundred percent, it's not because of me. (laughs) 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 No, you guys are better about it than I am. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, so listeners, you can find us on iTunes. If that's not already where you found us, um, we're on the web at theblackcoatpodcast.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at Black Goat Pod, and we're on Facebook too, facebook.com slash Black Goat Pod. So for our main topic, we wanted to talk about moving. And speaking of feedback from people, this is this topic came up because we put out a call a few weeks ago on Twitter, like, did anyone have any things that they wanted us to talk about uh, on the podcast? Because we were sort of looking for new ideas. And Laura de Reuter uh, posed a question about moving, and it was, she was asking, I, I think, I don't have the tweet in front of me, I think sort of specifically, like, was interested in in sort of us talking about international moving, which none of us have extensive experience with, but it, we kind of were, yeah. we're sort of... Yeah, Alexa moved international. Oh, uh, okay, yeah, I guess, got to move Canada, <laughs> does that count? But uh... <laughs> People like you make it so much harder, <laughs> Not even recognizing me as an immigrant. Uh, yeah. Um, but so we, we thought it would be interesting to talk about moving more generally because moving is a big part of academic life for a lot of people. There was actually a separate from this, a Twitter thread about this recently. Um, people were talking about how far they'd moved and everyone, pretty much almost everyone in that thread was like, yeah, I moved a long ass way multiple times. Um, it's kind of something that we've built into the structure of the field. You typically move... Not everybody, certainly, but a lot of people move pretty far for graduate school. You're expected to sort of, if you want to go into academia, nowadays, probably not always, depending on what field you're in, but often move for a postdoc and then move again for a job. So people are just moving around. It's kind of something that um, by design or by accident or some combination of it is part of academic life. So we wanted to talk about moving both our personal experiences of it as well as kind of like it's one of these sort of... I, don't know, I feel like a few years ago there was this like spate of books where this is still kind of a thing where but it was like the one thing that explains everything in history it was like there was a book on like mm-hmm. salt and how like the history of the trade of salt explains everything about history mm-hmm. and you know guns germs and steel I guess that's three things or yeah. whatever and so this is like moving how does moving explain everything about academia but mm-hmm. it kind of feels like one of those things that is sort of when you step back and you look at how much people move and what that does it's kind of a big deal. But you guys, so, so yeah. okay, so you guys did move in, in one case, internationally. I'm sorry, Alexa, I forgot that Canada is a different country. <laughs> uh, did you yeah. go into all this, I mean, like, yeah. planning? Like, when you were starting in graduate school, did you sort of see moving as part of what you were going to do? Was that something that you even thought about? Was it appealing? Was it a, like, well, I'll deal with it? No, like, I think that, um, <clears throat> I, I think that, the moving aspect of academia was something that I never really reflected on until actually not right after I moved, but a while after, um, because I sort of think that we just slowly get brainwashed into accepting that this is like a part of academic life and everybody does it. And it's sort of understood that like, if you get a good postdoc or if you get a good 
position in grad school or if you get a good job that you just like go wherever that thing is. Um, and it becomes, it's such a norm within academia that I didn't really question that norm. Um, and then, yeah, like after I had gotten the job at Alabama and moved from Toronto to Alabama, like a few months in, I was like, what a crazy thing to do. Like I, I really like left everything that I knew. Like I left all of my friends and my family. I didn't know anyone in Alabama. I left the country that I grew up in. I left a city that I really loved. And it was just like all for, uh, an academic job. And I have no regrets about that. Like I, I really like my job. I have like a really, really nice life here that I like a lot. Um, but I do think that that's kind of an insane decision. Um, so yeah, I guess like, I feel like, yeah, I sort of got brainwashed into not questioning that. (laughs) Yeah. When I was young, I mean, I, so I moved pretty far to go to college. I grew up in New Jersey and went to college outside of Chicago. And then, and, and when I was sort of getting ready to go off to graduate school, the idea of moving was like actually appealing to me. Like I, the idea of like living in new places, um, and sort of, you know, getting far from where I grew up because kind of, you know, New Jersey sort of being a high schooler in New Jersey kind of had that, you know, was complicated, but anyway, um, so at the time it was like when I got into grad school and went, ended up going to Berkeley, it was like awesome. And Berkeley seems like a really interesting place. And, you know, being next to San Francisco mm-hmm. in the mid to late 1990s and early 2000s was really interesting because so much was going on. And so moving and sort of going all over the place kind of seemed cool to me. And, and I didn't think as much at that age about like the... Because I was sort of like everybody I went to grad school with, well, there were some people from California... Um, hardly anybody was from Oakland or Berkeley. Um, so even the Californians, a lot of them moved up from SoCal or other places. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't really think about, it was just like, oh, that's what academics are like. And it, it didn't occur to me mm-hmm. like, oh, there, there could potentially be a bunch of other people who could be contributing to this, but who m- were sort of selected out of this because they didn't want to do this. Um, Mm -hmm. and what, you know, what is it about some of it is personality and some of it is your economic circumstances and other things that sort of makes you more and less willing and free and able to move. But it, it really like all, you know, being in Berkeley with all these people who were sort of willing, many of them willing to put up roots, pull up roots and move. And I remember like a lot of the Californians when I first moved there, because Californians are very like kind of chauvinistic about California being the best place in the universe. Hey. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so there were people that had grown up in California who were just like, well, I'll, I'll leave this, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll move within California if I, to get a job, but I'm not going to leave mm-hmm. the state. And I was like, what is wrong with you people? I'm shocked by that as someone <laughs> who's from California. It's just, there's not that, like, California is huge, but there's not that many universities. It's really like, it's not like being from the Northeast and saying, I'll go to university in the Northeast. It's much harder, I think, on the West Coast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's interesting. I feel like I'm, I never really thought about it very much. And I think I have the personality and the circumstances where it's the opposite for me. I think I was drawn to academia in part because you don't have to stay in one place for very long. Mm-hmm. And I think actually when I moved to Davis, ever I've been here four years now and I have this like weight on my chest. It's like, I will maybe be here for the rest of my <laughs> life because like I don't want to take the risk of leaving and then not being able to come back to California like I, I love California I'm one of those I'm one of those I'm crazy about California in the way that yeah, I love it but not in the sense that like I never wanted to leave it I left for college and grad school my first job but the thought of leaving scares me because I don't know if I would be able to come back but the thought of staying here for 35 more years also makes me hyperventilate and so I have this Is weird you're like, gonna die no, but retire maybe. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> die. Who knows? Um, yeah, like I, I like that about our jobs, but I also realize I'm in a position of privilege where I can afford to like that about our jobs. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess now like that I'm thinking about my life before I moved to academia, maybe the one reason, or sorry, when I moved to Alabama, um, one of the things that maybe made that feel like such a big deal was that I really hadn't moved very far before. I went a few hours away from home to go to college. Um, but that was the first big move I'd ever done. So maybe I was 
it felt like more of a big deal. Yeah, I think maybe because, so my dad moved from Iran to France in his 20s, and then my family moved from France to California when I was five, and then, yeah, like my brother ended up going to Columbia for college in New York, and I went to Minnesota, and so like, I don't know, I just thought these distances were kind of trivial, I guess, Mm -hmm. because our extended family was so far away, my parents were so far away from their families of origin, and so to Mm -hmm. me, like being in Minnesota when my family was in California wasn't that big of a deal, all of their families of origin were much further away than that, and my family still spread out everywhere, so... I think I've never seen those distances as as big of a obstacle. Mm-hmm. Oh, and again, because I have this, the f- uh, yeah, I'm lucky to be able to see it that way. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and there, you know, there's this funny thing about the, you know, I was thinking about college towns and how college towns, especially like sort of smaller college towns, often. You know, they're politically they're often more liberal than areas around them, but also just sort of culturally they're often different. There's often, you know, a lot of yeah. You get bands coming through town. You get music coming through town. You get you know, and some of that's just the nature of a university period that it brings. You know, that's what universities do is they sort of you know bring in ideas and art and science and other things. But you know, some of that too, I think, is that. Like in, you know, like in my department, hardly any of my colleagues are from Oregon originally, you know, and so we're, mm-hmm. we're at the state university, we're teaching Oregonians for, for a large part, but hardly any of us grew up in Oregon. And that's just kind of a, a part of, and Eugene's bigger than a college town. It's, it's sort of, it's the second largest city in Oregon. It, it's uh you know, decent sized town in its own right, but it's still like the university is a pretty outsized influence on the town. And there's something about like, there are these little dots of places all over the country because of how universities work, that they're sort of regional. And so it's not like the tech industry where it concentrates in a couple of cities. It's by the nature of a university being a university, you have them everywhere. And there are these like people so there's these towns all over the place that because they have a college or university they're full of people who aren't from that area and there's Mm -hmm. kind of something about the culture of those towns that's sort of often makes them similar to one another and different from the areas 10 miles away from any one of them Mm -hmm. i don't know i mean you've you've talked alexa about like tuscaloosa being you know very different than other parts of Alabama, right? I think so. I mean, I don't know other parts of Alabama well, um, but I think that I think that Tuscaloosa's Tuscaloosa and Birmingham, which is an hour away, are pretty um, anomalous. Yeah, I think so. Um, which is, uh, yeah, kind of a cool thing about it, especially in a place like Alabama, where a college town is going to be like fairly different from the rest of the state. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this is maybe you were, I think, alluding to this at one point, Sanjay, but I think also the fact that moving is such a big part of our jobs and threatening to move, even if we don't actually move, is also a big part of our jobs and how we get raises and so on. So I think that, you know, it definitely hugely privileges people like me who don't have kids who even if I don't want to leave California, I can easily say that I'm willing to leave California and no one's going to call my bluff because what do I have holding me, you know, tying me down here? I don't have a partner with a job here. I don't have kids. I don't have custody issues with whatever. So there's all these things, all these ways in which people in my situation are, have a huge advantage in the like financial system of academia. And Mm -hmm. yeah, that's that's the point. It's a side effect that I don't think we think about very much. Yeah. Yeah. Like you can't, you can't threaten to get a job across town in most places. And there was actually, this was a few years ago, I think, was it UNC and NC State? There were, I remember, actually, this just popped into my head. I should, like, go look it up to see what happened. There was some, uh, um, like, legal case suggesting that they had colluded to not hire one another's yeah. faculty and, and that this yeah. was actually sort of like a violation of labor law um, right, because right. it's sort of monopsony or whatever the, the term is. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I... I sort of going the other direction or, you know, sort of a different take on that. I recently took a, um, I was sent an email survey. Someone was doing a study on 
scientific labor and childcare. And so they were sort of, I don't know, did you guys get this by any chance? Well, yeah, I don't know. Well, I don't know how they would know I had kids, but anyway, so maybe they were sending Mm -hmm. it to a bunch of people, but it was sort of like all these questions about the, like, if you have kids, what's the division of labor between you and your partner and what do they do and that kind of thing. And this is something, um, I, there was a comment box at the end that I ended up writing a fucking essay that one of their research assistants is probably going to have to code. So I'm sorry. All right. But you know, it was like, this is something I've talked with Kristen about before and, and sort of talked about in other contexts too, how we ended up, uh, a lot of our decisions were, so, so Kristen and I have ended up with more of what looks like an old fashioned traditional, not what looks like what is old fashioned, division of labor than I think either of us would have anticipated having earlier on. Um, She has a career of her own, but she's made a lot of sacrifices too. Um, And a lot of that was a side effect of making decisions for my career that included moving that really affected and constrained her opportunities. And, And it was one of those things where you know, we, once we decided we weren't going to split up, then the, you know, then the decision becomes like, okay, I'm in this career that I'm just going to have to move to who, who knows where the fuck I'm going to have to move to. Um, so do we want to be long distance for a while? Or is it important to us to be together in the same place? And when we decide we want to be together in the same place, then it's like, okay, I have these really limited options. And so you're just going to have to get dragged along with me and figure out your career path where I go. And so, you know, and so, so all these things kind of, we, you know, we made all these decisions to move for me and my career that had these effects on Kristen and her, you know, opportunities where she's a magazine journalist and there aren't a lot of, she writes for the one magazine in Eugene, but there are, you know, Mm -hmm. there's not a big magazine industry. If we'd followed for her career, it would have been New York or maybe LA and that would have been it. Um, and it would have been very different and nobody in New York hires personality psychologists. So I would have had to find something different to do. Um, so it was this kind of like weird, uh, way that not weird, but this, this way that sort of moving contributed to us occupying what ended up being fairly traditional roles where she had, you know, she took time away from her career when our son was born to be a full-time mom and now has re-entered the workforce. But of course, being out of the workforce affects what she can do in addition to like being in a place with limited sort of geographically close possibilities and all that. Yeah. And there's a gender and sexual orientation difference yes. in how likely you are to find yourself in a position yes. where your partner is willing to do those things. Absolutely. And so, I mean, one thing we don't talk about very often and <clears throat> is that sometimes those decision points lead to people actually breaking up. And so yeah. part of moving is breaking up or, or doing long distance or doing things like that too. And mm-hmm. yeah, those decisions can be really tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I've known of academics who just have a permanent long distance relationship. Mm-hmm. Like, like it's, you know, it's yeah. one thing to say like, Oh, we'll be long distance for a little while, which, uh, you know, some number of sort of middle and upper middle class, highly mobile couples do, but I, there's a non-trivial number of academics who are like, yeah, my partner lives, you know, 300 miles away. And we've just mm-hmm. sort of arranged our lives, and that's kind of how it is. I know one case where it's 6,000 miles. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's permanent. I don't think, in the, I think in their heads it's not permanent, but it's pretty long term. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, there's. Oh, go ahead, Alexa. I was just going to say, I was going to change the subject, actually. Me too. So that's not, why I not entirely for moving, but um, another thing that sort of strikes me about, as bizarre about academia, but I'm kind of excited about is the the idea of sabbaticals and moving for them um so to me that seems exciting because it's like a chance to live for uh you know like a relatively non-committal amount of time in a different place um but then I also have hesitations about that too because it's like a long enough time to interrupt your life somewhere. it's called disrupt like, in silicon valley <laughs> sabbatical colon <laughs> disrupt but actually i do think that's what it did for me and in, in a really good way and that might sound callous towards some things that i disrupted and i apologize to the people who were negatively affected but i don't i think the same part of me that likes the idea of moving every five or ten years is a part of me that wants to like i don't meditate but i would love to like 
every seven years go to a distant place where I have a completely different perspective on my life and I'm forced to decide do I want to renew do I want to re-up on the same life when I go back or mm-hmm. do I want a different right. life and I think some people don't like that they want stability and predictability and they, they don't want to question things all the time and I get that mm-hmm. and especially if you have people who depend on you and so on you can't just every five years be like do I want to keep going with this commitment to my kid <laughs> but right. I think I'm the kind of person who I find that really refreshing to feel like it's a choice and to feel like I can take stock every once in a while and I'm not going to just get on this track and mindlessly keep doing the same thing I've been doing either academically or personally or whatever yeah I like that idea a lot but then at the same time I'm like uh maybe this comes goes back to us talking about missing people too (laughs) like I'm like if I leave Tuscaloosa for six months I'm gonna miss people so much or four months yeah we're so we're going to LA in a month and a half for sabbatical and yeah well it's I've been putting off most of the planning because it's Mm -hmm. like kind of feels a little overwhelming but uh so we still have to find a place and and all that we're just going to be there a few months so so it's not quite the like full year half year thing we we did seven months in Austin the last time I had a sabbatical and and that is that's one of the things that actually uh Kristen has been in our relationship the the like vehement force that she's like if you know if I have to move to follow you then like every seven years we're taking your damn sabbatical and we're going somewhere interesting um and so uh but that that you know a lot of people who have kids and partners don't go away somewhere for a sabbatical because it's it's hard to do that depending on Mm -hmm. what your partner does and that kind of thing um but it is like it's a we loved being in Austin because it was a cool city. It was a really interesting time to be there. And, you know, we got to have a taste of another place. And so the, the part of me that as a young person was excited to move to new places, um, it's just like my high openness self is really into the idea that mm-hmm. like I can, you know, immerse myself in some other part of the world for a little while. And, and yeah, mm-hmm. kind of have that different perspective on things. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. I think it's my introversion that likes it because every time you go to a new place, yeah. you're kind of a wallflower for a while, <laughs> or at least I am. And when it's compounded by introversion, like I'm still like unknown to many of my colleagues at Davis, which <laughs> I mean, you would think that's, that might, might not make me feel good, but I actually like it. Like I like being an observer. I like taking my time to figure out and not, not feeling like I'm in a rut, feeling like everything is a conscious choice. Like I'm going to decide whether to take on this role or get involved in this just because I did it back mm-hmm. at WashU doesn't mean I have to do it here. Um, but yeah, maybe it's also partly openness, but, mm-hmm. but I think people yeah, tend to I think of see... introverts as not liking that kind of thing, but it is really yeah. fascinating to be in a new place. I mean, the downside is you get treated as an outsider for a while. And if it's sabbatical, maybe for the whole time you're there, mm-hmm. um, that, that can be frustrating if you're there for a short visit and you never integrate, but yeah, but from an anthropological point of view, it's pretty cool. I mean, I feel like the thing that's appealing to me appeals to my extroversion mm-hmm. um, in the obvious way of like, you know, it's like an opportunity to meet new people. But you also do like meeting new people. It's like I a do. way in which we're. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's like the only thing you like about anything. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but they have to be the right people. <laughs> yeah, right. That's... Yeah. Very yeah, selective. But... Yeah. You know, another thing that's kind of interesting about how moving affects academia is conferences because Mm -hmm. I feel like they, they play this really important role as kind of like reunions almost. So, and Mm -hmm. actually when I, you know, this is still the case for me that my grad school friends, we get together at conferences, um, at SPS becoming up, someone's like, you know, organizing a get together for my grad school friends and and for other people like you guys, I get to see you in person Mm -hmm. mostly because of conferences Mm -hmm. and it's kind of, so it's kind of like conferences occupy this, I think, important social place for a lot of people that, that we sort of, you know, we sort of talk about, but they're, again, sort of viewing them in relation to how, just how much moving is a part of academia, that they, they end up being this kind of like your, your sort of your comfort people and your secure base are the people you get together like- at conferences with. My life got a thousand times better when I realized that you don't have to wait 
for someone to organize a conference to just get together with your friends that you get together with at conferences. <laughs> like this dawned on me at one point that I was like, we could just decide to all go to the same place for a weekend, even if there's not a conference there. And again, you have to have the resources to do that, but, and often you can combine it with something work related and, and kind of do a mm-hmm. double to kill two birds with one stone. But yeah, I, w- I realized I was looking forward to conferences so much. I was like, I should try to make this happen not on professional society's schedules or not exclusively. Mm-hmm. So wait, you, you, is people like just go visit their friends? That's a like, thing <laughs> people do. I've been to Eugene a few times. Yes, you have. No, yeah, that's, uh, it's just, it's funny that you, I think you totally do that. Like you, you've come up and visited us here and, and I, know and I was just thinking Alexa actually and... with Bear dying, one of the silver linings is that'll be a lot easier. So I hope I can come up to Eugene. Oh, well, I guess you guys won't be there in the spring, but. I mean, you when can you still come back. up here. You can, yeah. <laughs> do you, actually, if you want to come up here for three months, you want to rent our house? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that's right. You did plugs on the last episode. If anybody wants to rent a house for three months in Eugene, <laughs> Oregon from April through June, uh, hit me up. Uh, <laughs> I want to come visit you in L.A. You should totally come visit us in L.A. Well, probably like for for you I'm know, I'm gonna be in LA in April. We should, oh, we should, you should yeah, we should get to yeah. For <laughs> we're probably gonna have like a for the three of us for what we're used to paying for a mortgage in Eugene. We're probably gonna be like renting a studio apartment uh, in LA, mm-hmm. but <laughs> we'll uh, we'll see yeah. how that goes. Yeah, but yeah, mm-hmm. no, you guys should totally visit us in LA. Um, see, this is this is the moving thing. This is like yeah. your, you know, it is so funny though. Like my, I mean, you were talking about how like your family sort of was flung around the world, and and mine very much was too. Like where I grew up was far from. I, my dad moved from India to Michigan when you know to to come to the United States, and then we landed in New Jersey. And my my mom grew up in North Dakota, and so we didn't have you know close family around for a while until sort of some some families started kind of moving there later on. Um, and I always contrast that in my head with what my wife, you know, her, she's like the only one or not the only one, but one of very few, uh, who've left the Detroit area. And so we go back to visit and there's like, they'll have a Christmas party and, you know, and I'll go to my in-laws and there'll be like 50 people there. And it's just all family who drove half an hour from where they live. Um, mm-hmm. and it's just a very different, you know, I think a lot of us need conferences and visiting friends and all these other things to have kind of a sense of like the continuity of people that know you well, that you see all the time, that yeah. because you've moved away from family and because, you you know, you don't get to put down roots or it takes a while to put down roots. And if you have to move a lot, you haven't always had those. Yeah. I realized when I started, you know, I made the assumption that other people had like a lot of family to spend time with on the holidays and stuff like that. But recently I started being more blunt with my friends that I just like hate the holidays and I'm bored and I have nothing to do. And then one of my friends was like, we should go somewhere next winter break. And I was like, you would do that? Like you would go somewhere with me? I was like, let's go to Hawaii. And she was like, yeah. (laughs) I'm like, seriously, I would do it if she's serious. Um, And I think yeah, it's easy to assume that other people don't need that and you're the only one who does, but give, especially in academia where we keep yeah. moving over and over again, even if you did have a close-knit family growing up, you're probably far from them. And many yeah. people never had that. And so I think it's good to just be like, hey, I would like to see you more than just at SPSB. Yeah, I've um, I've had a lot of conversations with people over the past few years about um, the appeal of living in a commune Um, not so much like the, like, uh, not necessarily like the living off the grid or anything like that, but just like living with like a group of people that's larger than a family unit. And I feel like that's a, an extremely popular idea actually. So, um, I don't know if people are, it's just like a fun thing to be idealistic about, but in practice people wouldn't want, um, wouldn't want to do it. But at least when you talk to people about it, I feel like it's like, and maybe these these are also the people who I'm attracted to as friends. Um, but I'm surprised at how, how many people find that idea really appealing. And I've started like you, Samine, being like more forward with like, uh, I guess, doing things with friends that you would would maybe normally be seen as like something that you would do with family or something. Mm-hmm. So I'm currently trying to convince um one of my friends to stay in Tuscaloosa after she graduates. 
And I'm just like, I'm here. I mm-hmm. can't be your family in Tuscaloosa. You don't <laughs> no. need to get a job somewhere else. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that people want want that more than maybe is typically communicated. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it just doesn't occur to people as something to prioritize. Right. I so I mean, what do you guys think academia would look like if moving wasn't necessary? I mean, this is one of the things like I, because of, you know, my high openness and because of my sort of, you know, background allowing me to, to move and travel and whatever, like I find it kind of appealing. But I do think about people that aren't here or I wonder about, you know, who are the people that aren't here because... Yeah. Because they have elder care or family obligations that prevented them from going to graduate school or moving or because they mm-hmm. decided, I mean, I've, I've had students who've, you know, in my own lab and students that I've mentored in other, other ways who've sort of made choices because of partners and families and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. People from different socioeconomic backgrounds, people from yeah. different cultural backgrounds that emphasize being closer to family. Um, it's a very biased filter. Yeah. Like what, what would one. academia look like if you could just get, I mean, aside from the fact that like it, all the other things that would have to be different for this to be the case, but uh, you know, if, if you could just get an academic job in the town of your choosing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it'd be more diverse, especially I think SES is a big one um, because yeah, to have the freedom to be able to move and have a safety net and things yeah. like that wherever you go is that selects for people who are used to yeah having that comfort and backup mm-hmm. and stuff yeah i don't know i mean to some extent i think that there's i don't know maybe this is wrong maybe this is just like a nice way to think about it but i was gonna say that maybe there's some um generativity or creativity that comes from people being from so many different places at a given university. So, you know, there's like the idea that, um, well, the idea and the practice that people, uh, departments often don't hire their own graduate students. Um, and my understanding of the reasoning behind that is that, um, they, there's like this goal to diversify, I guess, your, your intellectual culture. So you don't have the same, um, the same ideas all in one place evolving together, but you like shake it up often. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if that's true or not, but it seems like a nice consequence, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is kind of interesting to imagine like if you could socially engineer a different academia, how would you, because I think there is a certain, like, you know, it's, it's sort of like you have all different kinds of people from the same background. (laughs) (laughs) that's kind of what you're saying Alexa is like so how would you engineer it so that you had more socioeconomic diversity racial diversity um a more gender-friendly environment but that you would also have this like churn of ideas and perspectives you would need the government to provide a real safety net so that people could take the risks of like going to grad school and moving across the country and so on I don't know I don't think it would just require academia to change it would require society to change yeah yeah. yeah, I think, I don't know, I, th- I guess, yeah, I don't, I don't know what that would look like, but it, it is, I think it's, you know, when, when you look around at sort of the similarities among people around you, it's, and then, but then these kind of like differences of like training and, you know, scientific perspectives and that kind of thing that sort of come from moving. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how you would achieve both. I would, in an ideal world, want both of those things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's an easy answer. Also, <laughs> my dog is threatening to pee in my office. Okay. She's well, awake now, so I have to take her for a walk. I think we should, uh, yeah, we should probably, I don't think there's an easy answer is probably how we end most of our episodes, right? But, uh, yeah, right. yeah. Well, uh, cool. This has been interesting as always. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, we'll talk to you next time on The Black Goat. Mm-hmm.